Uh, before, before we get going, let's pray. God, I pray now that as we, as we open your word, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand what your word is saying. That we would not only be alert to what the, the, the truth that your word is communicating, but that we would, we would take it to heart, that we would live it out, that it would not just be informational, but transformational. In Jesus' name, amen. There was one time um, I was having a great day. It was several years ago now, and um, it was during something called the bomb cyclone, if you guys remember the bomb cyclone. Is, is those of you who, who just moved here, we had a bomb cyclone. That's like the best winter storm. It's like the bomb, you know? So it's a big winter storm, lots and lots of snow and lots and lots of wind, and we were told on the news, stay home. I said, clearly that's for new people. Uh, I went to the office, and I, I still work out of a co-working space over here, and at the time I shared an office, it was like an office within the co-working space, and it was one of the best days I've ever had, because the other people in the office weren't there, so none of this. And I was just getting work done, and I was looking out the window at the snow falling. It was so beautiful. I was cozy. And, um, and, and I just have to say this. My feet get way too hot and sweaty in winter boots, so I take them off inside, right? And so I usually wouldn't do that, but because I was alone and there was no one else in this whole place, it was, it was totally fine. And so I am just having a wonderful day. I had snacks, and there was a, a spigot for sparkling water in, like, the basement of this place, right? And so one point, I'm, I'm sitting there, and, and I see uh, the wind is just whipping the, the electrical wires, and one of them busts, and there's blue sparks. I was like, oh, pretty. And, <laughs> and, and so I, I go down, I, like, I start heading down to get sparkling water from the basement, like, in my socks. And I'm, I'm like Tom Cruise in Risky Business. I'm just, like, in my socks, sailing down the hallway, living my best life. This was awesome. I went down. I got my sparkling water, um, you know, just kind of checking out other people's offices. Oh, that's cool, right? Because no one's there. I, I literally had the run of the place. And uh, it's one of these future is now kind of places where... Um, you know, the, all the doors lock, like every hallway, every office, and you have to take a key card and, like, buzz yourself in. I don't know. You guys know what these are. I'm not, yeah, you know. You've seen um, because you live in the same place I do. Uh, and so I came to the hallway where my office was, and I dinged my little thing. Nothing happened. It had lost power. That little, that pretty blue sparks apparently was a supplying power to the building and especially the doors. And so I could not get back to my office. I said, oh, that's okay. I'll just uh, get in my car and drive home because, you know, I SUV, get home, no problem, except I remembered that my keys were also in my office because I like, I don't like having things in my pockets so that's where they were. I was like, that's okay, I'll walk home. Except that I remembered that I'm not wearing shoes and there's two feet of snow out there 
and my jacket's up there too. I said, well, I guess I can call Sharon, except that when I say I don't like anything in my pockets, that my phone too, I don't like carrying a phone. And I was out of options. I was completely stuck. There was nothing at all I could do. And for all I knew, I was going to have to spend the night there and like break into someone's office and hope they had a Mars bar or something. The Bible's description of our position before God, of the hope we have of getting ourselves saved, of escaping the judgment of God, is just as hopeless as that. I don't know where I got it from, but even though I didn't grow up in church, I somehow heard that what the Christian faith teaches is that if you're good enough, you get placement in heaven. Like, right, you, you kind of prove yourself worthy and God gives you eternal life. I don't know where I got that from. Never been to church in my whole life, and I have now, but growing up, I hadn't been, right? But that's what a lot of us understand, is that, that we sort of have to do it ourselves. But the thing is, is that when we look at what the scriptures actually say about the possibility of proving yourself worthy, we find out we run out of options pretty quick. We're just as trapped as I was at that office. Because God's standards for how you earn salvation are perfect holiness. What that means is that you've ever lied, you've ever lusted, you've ever been prideful, you've ever done something, uh, you know, whatever. If you've fallen short in any way, you're automatically disqualified. Right? Your keys are in your office, my friend. There's no, there's no getting out that way. It's completely hopeless. And I'll make it worse for you. It's not just avoiding sin, but holiness, like perfect holiness and righteousness, is not just what you don't do, it's what you do. You always have to act in justice, in mercy, in righteousness. So not only do you have to avoid the sin, you have to be perfect that way too. Romans 3.22 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John, in one of his letters, tells us, anyone who says that they don't have sin is a sinner because they're a liar. You say, well, you know, the, the, the negotiation, the, uh, well, I could just walk home version, <laughs> the, the one I, I typically hear is, well, I haven't murdered anybody, right? And that's what makes me worthy. Right? You compare yourself to the worst of the worst, and I'm better by comparison. So if God has to take somebody, <laughs> he'll take me before he takes a murderer. Think of it like this. You know, that at amusement parks, there's the, you must be this tall to ride line. Well, eternal life has a, you must be this holy to get it line, right? And so let's say I'm like, well, I have six foot worth of righteousness. And this person only has four foot worth of righteousness. I'm closer, right? Clearly, I'm better off, except the, the line is 50 feet high. So even if you're the tallest human being that's ever lived, you know, the world record, nine feet tall of righteousness, still not close to 50. 
So no better off than the four-footer, right? Is this hopeless enough for you yet? Because you might be asking, well, what are we doing then? What's the whole point of this? Is it just to hear how hopeless it is? Who can be saved and how? Well, Exodus chapter 12, it takes us through the central redemptive event of the Old Testament. You know what that is? The Exodus itself, God bringing his people out of bondage and into the land of promise. It is, we're going to see millions of people get saved right here. So maybe this will clue us in on how we too can earn salvation. Okay, let's take a look. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So uh, knowing Tom Cruise's acting style can sometimes help you in biblical interpretation. When a scene is a big deal, he says everything twice. You had me at hello. Or no, that's Renee Zellweger. Uh, we live in a cynical world. A cynical, cynical world. He's locked on to me, Goose. He's locked on to me, right? So when Tom Cruise says it twice, you know that this is an important, a more important scene. So this just said twice, this is the first month of your year. It's time to reset the calendar. Why? Salvation has come. All of these miracles before, all that God has done before is prelude to chapter 12, the actual exodus. Let's see what they're supposed to do to prove themselves worthy. Verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So as a community... You're going to eat a goat or a, or a lamb, either one. So that, that's what we have so far. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Tuck that one away. That same night, they are to eat the meat. Okay, this is the important part. Eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw roast, or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So what are they supposed to do? Have a meal. But did you notice how they're supposed to have a meal? This is important. It really is. They can't boil it. Why? Boiling takes extra implements to clean up. They're supposed to roast it. The quickest and easiest cleanup. Okay, so fast. And how, are they, how else are they supposed to eat it? They're supposed to make bread with no yeast. Why? Yeast takes a while. Picking up on a theme yet? 
and they're supposed to eat it with their cloak tucked in their belt, their sandals on their feet, and staff in their hand. It, just in case you're wondering, that's not how you ate. That's like saying, make sure you've got your phone, wallet, keys, and hiking poles, okay? And make sure you have them on you and your jackets on, ready to go out the door. You picking it up what it is yet? What's their salvation? Their salvation is, we're out of here, right? What are they supposed to do? Get ready to get out of here. It's to trust that God is going to deliver them. Before God has delivered them, they are to, you, you don't just go killing goats, people. You don't just go killing lambs. This is like Thanksgiving dinner, but you got to eat it in such a way where cleanup is fast, cooking is fast, and you're ready to be out the door. So you're supposed to act in faith. They're supposed to trust God for salvation. Did that make sense? Okay, great. So the, the meal that they eat itself is an act of faith and the way that they eat it. They're, they're to trust God for, for salvation. Here's the other thing you're supposed to do. Look at verses 14 through 20. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. What kind of bread did they eat on the Passover? Without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your household, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day through the seventh, must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. This is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast. This is Tom Cruise again, guys. How many times are they saying, don't eat bread with yeast in it? From the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. That's really repetitive. It's, Tom Cruise is like, get on with it. <laughs> and anyone, whether foreign or a native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Just like 15 times, it says what? No yeast. Why? Because that's what you ate on the day you were saved. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Festival of Unleavened Bread, culminates with Passover, right? It's to be a holiday, a community holiday. It's built into the calendar. You're starting the calendar over from this day, and you're to do it every single year. Why? to remember salvation. So they eat the meal in the first place as an as a, a act of trust in God to save them. And second, they are to remember their salvation. This is built into their year so that they remember, oh yeah, this is when God saved us. And so that generation after generation is carrying on the same uh, uh, festival to celebrate what God has done. But another thing they're supposed to do is look forward. Pick up with me at verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, 
Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So this, all right. I am usually suspicious when someone imagines Jesus into every page of the Old Testament. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus as an entirety, but when people are like, Song of Solomon points forward to Jesus, I'm like, no, mm -mm, sorry. <laughs> Good imagination, though. But this is a gimme, <laughs> all right? So what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to take a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, right? Jesus is even called the Lamb of God, and he is sinless. And they're supposed to do what? They're supposed to kill it. And then do what? They put the blood on the doorframe of their house. This is a symbolic act. It's like when you see in the Old Testament, it says, it says to write the law of God on the doorframe of your house. That's symbolic for the law of God's going to be observed in this house, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so when you put the blood of this lamb on your household and you're supposed to go inside of it so that judgment does not fall on you, right? This is very clearly pointing forward to Jesus who is the sinless one who dies for us and that has a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So it points forward to Jesus, and for them, it especially points forward to what? The land. This is really, really key. It's not just that God is bringing them out of Egypt. He's bringing them into a land of their own. So when they're eating this meal, what does it do? It's an act of trust in God to save them. It's a remembrance of, of God saving them, and it points forward to an even greater salvation. So how do you earn salvation? Those sound like tough works. Those sound like the labors of Hercules to where you prove yourself worthy? Not really, huh? Well, let's take a look at the Exodus event itself. Let's see if they fight a battle or come up big somehow. You know, prove themselves worthy of what God is doing for them. Look with me at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Now, by the way, if that's making your hair stand on end, you're like, whoa! Uh, kind of spent a lot of time on this last week, so if you're interested in the question of how we believe in 
the primacy of God's loving character and that he would do this. Uh, I point you, it's online. You can listen to that. Spent a long time. Um, okay, so this particular miracle, the game winner, the one which actually sets them free from Egypt, do you notice how it's different from all the previous miracles? The previous miracles were always done through Moses and Aaron. A staff was involved, typically. Where were Moses and Aaron here? Probably cowering inside of a house with some blood on it, right? Who did this miracle? God alone, right? Let's look what happens next, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me. He's like, get out and pray for me. The, Egypt's urged the, peop the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Now, the word plundered and the behavior of saying, uh, can I have your jewelry, please, and some clothing, this is the behavior and the word plunder for a conquering army. So the Israelites are behaving like a conquering army. If you're like, that's stealing, I would like to point out they spent hundreds of years in slavery. These are reparations, okay? <laughs> but they are behaving as a conquering army, and indeed, they are victorious, right? It is acknowledged by the Egyptians. Yeah, you beat us. Here's the stuff. What did they do? They stayed inside, didn't they? Verse 34. Oh, I'm sorry, 37. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sakoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt uh, was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Okay, so they get saved. There's salvation. What'd they do? Something big, right? Something what the, it, no, what they do? Nothing. Salvation came. How did they get saved? What's being emphasized in this passage with the fact that even Moses was out of the picture, that they're behaving as a conquering army, though they've done nothing but stay indoors, is that God does 100% of salvation. This is something you might call a pattern. Okay, this is how we see God 
act with his people. It's not that they are worthy and prove themselves worthy through their performance. Quite the opposite. In the coming chapters of the Exodus, we're going to see just how not worthy his people are, and we are going to see that God carries them through. This carries through the entire Old Testament, all the way into the New. Now, our salvation in the New Covenant is not from Egypt. None of us, as far as I know, I don't know all your stories, but I'm guessing none of you have been slaves in Egypt under the Pharaoh. We have an even greater salvation. We are slaves of sin and death. And what Jesus Christ has done on the cross to forgive us saves us. He does 100% of salvation. This is God's pattern throughout the scriptures. So remember that, that, that line that's like 50 feet high, you must be this righteous. Well, Jesus is that righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. It says that he who knew no sin became sin. Right? So what do we have? We have sin. What did Jesus have? Righteousness. What does he do? He takes sin on himself. And it says, so we might become the righteousness of God. The very righteousness required for eternal life is a 100% gift from God. God does 100% of salvation. So what are we to do? Well, first of all, we are to trust God for salvation. This is really the beginning. Any idea that I'm going to prove myself worthy through my great works, I want you to imagine me at that office completely out of options. That's your situation. When you can finally say, I can't do this myself. I am completely hopeless. What I need is salvation. What I need is a deliverer. That is the beginning. The irony of saying, well, I'm not as bad as a murderer is that probably the murderer who knows they don't deserve it is actually closer to the kingdom than the person who's saying, I'm going to earn it. I'm going to prove myself worthy somehow, someday. We need to admit we cannot possibly live up to God's standards. It's, it's not within us. 50 feet of righteousness, not doing it. There's a famous Bible verse, John 3, 16. It says, but God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who believes in him, anyone who trusts in him, would not perish but have eternal life. It is not up to us to earn it or to prove ourselves worthy or to prove ourselves somewhat better than someone who's worse. Instead, it is a free gift of God. God does 100% of salvation. We need to trust in him. But also, we need to remember salvation. And this is key. You know, uh, there's a thing, and I, it's been studied. It's called baby brain. It's when a, a woman who's pregnant, you know, all of like the blood from her brain is going into making the baby and becomes forgetful. I, my, my wife, who's had five babies now, yeah, right? But I think not enough attention has been paid to male baby brain. No, this... I'm sure that there's some studies on that, but, but, you know, no one understands the difficulty that men go through when their wives are pregnant. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, that's so funny. I, I can't get it through it with a straight face. Because uh, my wife was like, dude, dude, don't even. No, but seriously, I did find myself a little extra forgetful. Like Sharon would be sitting there seven, eight months pregnant in the bed, right? And I say, hey, hon, could you get me a, a thing of yogurt and a glass of water? I'm like, sure thing. Going down, and I'm like, well, that light bulb's out. Change that. And I was like, I wonder, when was the last time I changed the air filter? So I'm like down in the cellar doing the air filter. I come back up, it's like, I think I got ice cream last week. Sure did, right? And so I'm coming back up like 45 minutes later with a bowl of ice cream after changing the, the bulb and the filter. And she's like, hey, did you not get the yogurt? See, male baby brain. It's easy to forget. <laughs> Guys, it's not a real thing. Women go through everything. Men go through nothing. Okay, we good? Carolyn, we good? Yeah, all right. But it's so, like, I'm going to go home later after preaching this sermon, and I'm going to say, oh, I wonder if I'm okay with God. I'm going to forget the gospel later today, I promise you. I need community group to, like, to remind me again. We forget the gospel all the time. We revert to work so easily so that if we have a bad moral performance day or week, we're like, surely, you know, God's going to get fed up with me at some point. Or when we have a good one, we're like, oh, I'm rocking this. Look at that sinner over there. I'm so much better than them. You know, we forget the gospel. We forget the main thing so easy, easily. And so we really need to be, we need to remember it. This is not something we could do on our own. This is part of the purpose of the church. This is why we have things like a regular Sunday morning worship so that we can be reminded of the gospel. This is why we do communion every week, right? This is the gospel preached from the table every single Weak. We need to remember the gospel. We so easily forget. That's why we need each other in each other. We need to be in each other's lives. Because, I, I mean, I'm not alone here, right? Like, you guys forget all the time, don't you? You forget that God loves you. You forget that you're forgiven. And you need, like, when you start drifting, when you start reverting to evaluating yourself by your performance and thinking that's how God thinks about you too. You need a brother and sister to be reminding you. That's not true at all. God does 100% of salvation. God loves you, provided Jesus for you, for goodness sake, so that you can be saved. You know, we, we don't want to be like legalistic about these things, but part of the reason why we like you know, church calendars, daily devotionals, daily habits. Like, you don't want to be a legalist about any of these things. But the, the reason the church calendar was invented was so that there would be rhythms of community life where you're reminded of the gospel. Right? This is not something we do well on our own. But also, not only do we need to trust God for salvation and remember our salvation, but we need to look forward to a greater salvation. I'm talking about my wife a lot right now, but that's okay. I'm married to her. It's a big part of my life. But uh, when we got engaged, right, it was a joyous moment, right? As soon as she said yes and I, I put the ring on her finger, we were like, we were over the moon with with joy, it was, it, was, it was amazing. And uh, like, I'll tell you guys the story sometime, but we were up on a cliff overlooking an archipelago, archipelago, Arch archipelago, 
in Norway. It was baller. Um, I did a great job. But <laughs> it was beautiful, right? And then we went down, and, and the friends we were staying with like, had gotten like, cake and ice cream to celebrate the engagement, and it was, it was amazing. But you know what? This celebration actually looked forward to something far greater. It was looking forward to the wedding, to the wedding night. Proxy five for you. <laughs> to the marriage, to family, and the rest of it, right? All of these, like, the, if we had stopped and only, like, like this was joyful. The engagement was joyful. But what, what it pointed forward to, it, what it anticipated was far greater. In the same way that the Passover for the ancient Israelites was pointing forward not just to their deliverance from bondage, but also to the land. But it pointed even further than that. It pointed to Christ coming. It pointed to the full and final solving of the sin problem and the death problem. And not only that, for us, we live in the hope that as great as the first coming of Christ was that he returns again. Now, I, I, I might need to uninstall a little theological furniture for, or appliances. That's what you, you don't install furniture, do you? I'm going to uninstall a theological appliance that some of you might have. The second coming of Christ does not mean that the earth explodes and all our souls go to heaven. That is nowhere in the Bible. That was not church doctrine until about six, seven hundred years after Jesus, okay? Is that scaring anybody right now? Good. <laughs> Instead, what we see throughout the scriptures, in Romans 8, for instance, it doesn't say the creation is destroyed. It says that creation awaits its redemption. Does that sound like destruction? Jesus rose physically, like eating fish, touch my Touch me, physical. If eternity is souls in heaven, what on earth does he need a body for? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that we rise with bodies just like Jesus, physical. If we're to be souls in heaven, how does that work? What we actually see is that the last chapter of the Bible is not that the earth explodes but that heaven comes to earth, that the earth is renewed, that the creation that has been marred by sin, this world that is full of misery, is renewed to what it was meant to be, okay? And if you're thinking, like, doesn't the Bible say that the earth explodes? I think you might be thinking of Second Peter chapter 3. We could talk about that if you like, all right? It, seriously, we can just go get coffee and talk about that. Maybe I'll preach on it sometime so we can take a look. But the salvation that's coming, like the, the brokenness that we experience day to day, shootings at schools, wars in the Middle East and in Europe, uh, uh, starvation, racism, and the rest of it is going to be taken out of creation. And death itself will be removed from creation. That's the salvation that's coming. So when we, God does 100% of salvation, our job is not to earn it, it's to trust God to save us, it's to remember that salvation and look forward to an even greater salvation. 
when I was at the office, completely out of options, my one hope was that I could find one other person so that I could call my wife. <laughs> and I looked throughout the building and I saw one other dude at the office and he had a phone. And so I was like gung, 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 knocking on the doors and, you know, and he came over and I, and I was like, can I please use your phone? And so I called Sharon and of course she didn't pick up. It was a stranger's number. So I was like, Sharon, I'm stuck at the office. My jacket and my snow boots, my phone and my car keys are all locked up. I can't get home. Could you please get me? I hear wolves. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't have any option then except to sit and wait. So I sat waiting by the front door. And the snow was still falling thick. And then I saw a pair of headlights come. And it went right by. then another pair of headlights came and it turned in. I was like, could it be? And it got closer and it was our Honda Odyssey and it stopped. And then Sharon got out and she had a pair of boots and a jacket extra for me. I was saved. My deliverer had come. When I was out of options, when I, there was no hope that I could get myself home, she came. This is the picture of what the scriptures tell us God has done for us. That though we are completely out of options, though we are completely unable to save ourselves, that God does 100% of salvation. Please pray with me.